Matthew chapter 20, verse 16 to 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, last week on Holy Saturday, I was shaking when I came upon the 40th day of the Bible reading to finally finish it. And I was, I was shaking. My heart was palpitating. And I, and I figured, wow, this is how I might feel today when we finish, finally, the book of Matthew. And I thought last week my heart was palpitating because I was excited to finish. But now I think it was just my high blood pressure. But I can't believe Matthew is over. This Sunday, and I looked it up last night, this Sunday marks exactly to the week, one and a half years, 18 months. For one and a half years, we have been studying this book. And for one and a half years, the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has changed us. And it's just like the 1968 Virginia Slims commercial tagline. You've come a long way, baby. And I pray that you are now, that we are now more eager for spiritual food. One and a half years. And today's the last day. So let's get to the final four verses of Matthew together. In verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Matthew has always been very brief with the descriptions. He's always going directly to the crux of the narrative point, and here he is no different. Jesus had commanded the disciples that when he had risen from the dead, they are to meet him in Galilee. He tells the woman at the tomb these exact instructions. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus has appeared to many other people before this moment here. But Matthew goes straight to telling this account to close out the gospel. So you know that whatever we see here is the crux, the most important part of the post-resurrection teachings and instruction. Christ has risen from the grave. This isn't a theoretical or metaphorical or allegorical rising. This is the real deal. It was an actual physical resurrection. These historical evidence, after evidence, after evidence proves this. There are historical evidences that we see, in fact, If there is any evidence to the contrary, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we leave this religion? Shouldn't we leave following Jesus? Because 
this religion, this belief system, this is not meant to be just some feel-good religion like many during this pandemic, <clears throat> excuse me, this COVID pandemic, they are reminiscing about. You know, during this time, many people are looking for comfort. And some have even seen the benefits that religion can offer. One particular Washington Post writer in her op-ed wrote a piece called Even Those of Us Who Don't Believe Need What Religion Can Provide Right Now. And there she goes to write about how she saw the benefits of celebrating Passover and other Jewish traditions because of its functionality, because of the comfort it provides. In fact, in the very beginning of the article, she lays out her claim. She writes, God? Question mark. No. Period. But religion? Maybe a little. See, the irony of that statement is that tradition points us back what does tradition point us back to? It points us back to a truth claim. So if you hold on to the tradition without holding on to the truth, then can you really say you are honoring the tradition? We live in a post-truth era. And how, how ironic is it that we see people now trying to grab onto something, anything, but if it's not the truth, it's not real. You can't hold on to something that's not there. That's what we mean by truth. It's real. It actually happened. In fact, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, Paul will go on to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And it's just two verses later, he would say that we of all people should be pitied. We are the most pathetic if Christ did not rise again from the dead. But in verse 20, he would say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is actually Jesus Christ in the risen flesh that goes to Galilee just as he said he would and meets his disciples. That's why this is so important. That's why this is pretty spectacular and magnificent. And in verse 17, we see the response. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Here is the account of what happened when they saw him. They worshipped him. This is from the Greek word proskuneo, which means to fall prostrate or on your face in worship. This would hearken us back to Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi would come and ask, where's Jesus, so that they could go and proskuneo, they could go and bow down and worship him. And here's again something that happened. Here's something that gives us a glimpse of what actually happened while people 
worship Jesus. It says here, some doubted. Some doubted. Some were in disbelief or even hesitant. The literal word here is distazo, which means to doubt, and that's why it's translated this way. Some translations have this uh, word as hesitant, but in Matthew, the only other time this word is used is when Jesus is pulling Peter up from the water. After Peter sees the wind and the waves and he starts drowning, he starts to sink, Jesus picks him up by the hand and he starts pulling Peter up and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's distazo. That's the word used here. This doubt then is like that time. Those that suffer from little faith. And you have to wonder, why would Matthew record this? In fact, why would Matthew record any of this chapter? Look, if you want to start a religion from the 11 disciples, what kind of picture would you want? If you just want to start a religion, wouldn't you want a picture of strong, charismatic, and able men? In fact, that's how almost every religion is started. Why would you write about how the great 11, the 11 disciples, why would you write? And if you look at the other accounts, they were cowering inside a house while the women were the only ones brave enough to even go to the tomb. Why would you say that the first witnesses weren't you, but they were the women? And this would have made an even bigger impact in the first century because in the first century, the testimony of a Jewish woman was invalid. In fact, because of that, people from the first and second centuries didn't want to take the resurrection witness as valid because they even said it's Jewish women who were the witnesses. They don't count. Why would you write that knowing that this is what people would say? And as upsetting as this may make some of you right now, imagine, just imagine how unimaginable it would be if you were a first century Jew. Why would you record that while you were cowering, other Jewish authorities with the Roman soldiers were spreading accounts that you stole the body? And if you wanted to start a new religion, why in the world would you show your weakness here that some of you doubted? That's not how you start a religion. That's not how you start anything, to be honest. Someone tell these guys this, please. That's not how you start anything, bro. You don't start a company with the CEO going, well, everybody, thank you for coming. I'm not sure this is going to work out, but I need some extra cash to start this thing. That's not how you start a business. You don't record these things here unless it's true. You don't record it unless it actually happened. 
And you are not the CEO, but Jesus is. And he is alive. And he is in the flesh. And he isn't just some CEO. He is what he said he is. He is the risen king. And it's this Jesus that comes and says to them in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This here may be a familiar passage to many of you, but I want to focus on three aspects, three aspects here. Something that should stand out as I just read it. And you may be inclined initially to separate the message into three sections too. Meaning as, you know, westernized people, we look at verbs. So it's go and make and baptize and teach. Those are the three. But these are the imperative verbs that Jesus uses. And while this is okay, it may lead us into thinking that we should separate these three verbs. This is not true. These are actually all just one thing. So what are the three things that is standing out? There is one word that is repeated three times. All. To the reader, the word all would have stood out because it's repeated so many times. In the Bible, we saw that if something is repeated twice, we ought to have stood up in attention. But this is more than twice. And Jesus starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a different situation from before his resurrection. Before he was And fulfilled the man, he was the man from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But what about now? Now all authority, the fullest possible authority, has been given to him. He is making clear that the limitations that applied to him before on earth, before the resurrection, no longer apply to him. While he was on the earth, before the resurrection, he submitted to the world's powers. He got tempted. He got tried. He got mocked. He was tortured and even executed. But now he has supreme authority throughout the universe. Jesus, now having all authority in heaven and on earth, this Jesus is giving you this command. Now to the second, all. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has full authority over everything, and so he sends his disciples everywhere. All authority goes to 
all nations. He is defining who gets to hear the gospel, who gets the invitation to be part of the discipleship of Jesus Christ, all nations. So reading this, who is the missionary? Just people we call missionaries? Oh, missionary Kim. No. Every disciple of Christ is a missionary. If you are not making disciples, you are not following the command of Christ. Thereby, you are not a disciple. That much should be clear. We don't just send money to some folks overseas, lauding them for their sacrifice. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are a missionary. Your commission by the risen king is to make disciples of all nations. That means there is no boundary to your discipleship making. There is no nation. There is no racial border. There is no one too old, no one too young, no one too high in the social ladder, no one too low in the social ladder. Jesus' sweeping scope of his unlimited authority is giving us the sweeping scope of his commission. Remember, this was a Jewish writer writing to Jewish people. And if you were reading this at the time, this would have broken the molds of everything you had been taught. Even going to the house of a Gentile was considered unclean. Touching Gentile things or people was considered unclean. Making disciples? How would you make disciples? Like Jesus did? Then you did life with them just as he did life with you. This is why during this COVID lockdown, we're not to do less. We're to do more. If we can't meet we must go the extra mile because of the commission and the comprehensiveness that we have been given of this commission. We must give even more of ourselves, which brings us to the third, all. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are not separate commands meant to be divided up into segments, but it's one whole command. The way you make disciples is by baptizing them. And this isn't just by any name, any name of God, but Jesus shows us it is by the name of the true revealed God in Jesus Christ. The name, name is singular. It's God three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God three in one. Being a disciple has a key part here shown in Christ's words. You must be baptized. Not just in any way. But this is what the church sees as a sacrament. A holy institution that the Lord has commanded us to keep. 
And as Reformed Protestant Christians, we see that there are two sacraments that we have been commanded to keep. One is the Lord's Supper, and the other one is this. If you are to be a disciple of Christ, you need to be baptized. On Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, the people were cut to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? And Peter responded, repent and be baptized. From the very beginning, with this commission, the disciples knew that baptism was a key part of discipleship. <clears throat> Excuse me. Baptism was a key part of discipleship. Wait a minute. Some may refer back to the cross when the thief next to Jesus was saved. Didn't he get saved? He wasn't baptized as far as we know. How can you say that you need to be baptized as a disciple? And this is where if you have been following along and reading along with Matthew and you come to this point, you wouldn't be so confused because we know that baptism itself isn't salvific, but saved people get baptized. Here's what I mean. Just because you don't get baptized doesn't mean you're not saved. However, if you are saved, you will seek to get baptized. Do you know why? Because the Lord commands it. And the amazing thing about the sacrament of baptism is that you can't baptize yourself. And another disciple does it. The bigger picture, the church is involved. Sacraments, the two sacraments are both things that you need the church for. You cannot do it on your own. And we have to realize this. Baptism, however, is not the end all. Okay? Baptism isn't the end all. It's not like you get baptized. It's like, I'm good. Baptism is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Look at this. It's just the beginning. The new disciple is to be baptized, yes, but he or she is also taught to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. That's the third all. This is the all that perhaps many of us will have the hardest time with. But we must not miss the significance of this third all. All things means that we are not to make a selection of some things while neglecting the things that we don't like. The teachings of Jesus aren't just in Matthew. They're not. The teachings of Christ is in the entirety of the Bible. It's in Matthew where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Meaning, some people don't like the Old Testament. Some people just don't like the Old Testament. Some preachers have said, in fact, that we must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, meaning all we really need is the resurrection of Christ. And then all we need now is faith, faith in Christ's resurrection. But the resurrection has no significance without the Old Testament prophesying and teaching us what it 
means. How do you know who to look for as the Messiah if no one tells you who to look for? How do you know what the resurrection means without there being a truth claim behind it? And in this case, centuries and even millennia before. In fact, it can be said that the rest of the New Testament after Acts is just an exegesis of the Old Testament. You cannot have the New Testament without the Old Testament. Jesus commands his disciples to teach and obey the entirety of God's word. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's not just some old Latin phrase. It is exactly what Jesus teaches his disciples to follow. Immature and baby Christians have, in modern day, have called people who follow the instructions of the Bible to be Pharisees or legalists. And while at first glance you may think it may have some merit, maybe even to a small degree, let's explore this, okay? We'll quickly explore this. Sexual immorality is evil. It's a law in the Bible. However, those that call people legalists and Pharisees who follow this sexual purity are only condemning themselves because time and time again we have seen those that do not follow God's law are only doomed to suffer. Sexual immorality destroys your soul. In fact, all sin destroys your soul. You can't go around saying, I'm saved by Christ, I'm saved by Christ, and immediately turn back to your own vomit. If you are saved by Christ, then you would turn to the feast that is prepared for you. You would echo the statement that the psalmist would say, saying, oh, how I love your law. There is no other religion that can get this. And this is why without the Spirit, it is impossible for anyone to understand this. Because here it is. You are not saved by good works. You are not saved by your good works. You don't get saved because you don't have sexual immorality, but you are saved to good works. It is precisely because you are saved, you are able to enjoy the goodness of God and his way. Saved people long to be holy. You know why? Because God is holy. The God that you love is a holy God. And if you hate following God's law, you are not hating some random, arbitrary, capricious set of rules. You are hating the law that reveals the nature of God. This is precisely what Galatians 2.19 or Romans 7.4 is saying. We could never live up to the standards of God. So Christ came and died for us so that we could now, in Jesus, live to God. Being a disciple and making disciples has everything to do with teaching and obeying all 
that Christ has commanded us. Once you start parsing and taking apart and separating, it is no longer Christ that you follow. I would be incredibly fearful for your soul if you think, well, I love this love part, but these other things I just can't come to terms with. But if that is you, might I urge you to sit, be silent, and learn. Join the church, commit to it, sit, and learn. Again, it doesn't have to be this one, but it has to be a gospel-believing church. Sit, be silent, and learn. And Jesus commands his disciples to teach others to observe all that he has commanded us. So the three alls are, all authority has been given to Jesus, so we are to go to all the world, baptizing and teaching them to obey all the commands. There is actually a fourth all in here. And I'm sure the ones that are astute in their reading caught this. Yes, it's behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All is from the word pas in Greek. Always is written pasastas hemeras, which literally means all the days. So always is translated from all the days, right? And this is what Jesus says. Behold, look, I am with you all the days to the very end of the age. You may look at all this and you may think, this is insanity. How are we to keep this? I, I, I can't do this. Right, you can't do this. But Jesus commissions you and he gives us this promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of Matthew ends with a breathtaking promise. Behold, look. And the next words are I am, which is translated from ego eimi. I am the name that God revealed to Moses from the burning bush, the very same name that Jesus uses when he says, I am the vine, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the truth, the way, and the life. I am the name of God, and it isn't will be with you. I will be with you. It is I am with you. This emphatic I is on purpose. He isn't promising he will be with us. He is stating a fact. I am with you. And if you are afraid, if you are doubting, if you are like wondering how am I going to do all these things, you're exactly like the disciples. Some doubted. But here is the promise. He is stating a fact. I am with you. As surely as Jesus is the risen king, 
He is with us to the end of the universe, to the end of time. Praise be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this incredible word that you have given us and how when we open it and as your spirit reveals it to us, our souls are elated and we respond in worship. And just as some of the disciples doubted, there may be some here that need that encouragement So, Lord, speak to our souls through your word that you are with us to the very end of the universe, to the very end of time, that we may not be discouraged, but that we may run the race that is set before us. Help us to run the race as to win the prize, following our commanding officer in love for our king, truly as your child. Oh Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness over the last one and a half years as we've been studying this book and now we long to continue to grow and mature. Holy Spirit, be with your church. Empower us, teach us. Help us to grow. Help us to obey the commission the great King has given us to make disciples. We thank you, O God, for your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy. You are worthy of all praise. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.